Welcome to Hebrew Bible Insights, a podcast about making sense of the Hebrew Bible. I'm really excited about today's guest that we have, Dr. Sonia Cronin. I met her a few years ago when one of my master's degree professors introduced her. He uh, brought her in as a guest speaker for one of the classes, and I was just blown away. She is not only an incredible scholar, but she's just an incredible person. And so you're going to hear that today as she talks. She's extremely genuine, a very loving and kind person, but also incredibly insightful. So looking forward to that today. Um, The only news is just I'm glad to be back. Glad to have the podcast going again this fall and have a number of interviews lined up and also share some of my own Hebrew Bible insights uh, throughout uh, the coming months, which I'm excited for you all to hear. And if this is helpful for you, if you can share this with your friends, family, churches, anyone who is wanting to know more about the Hebrew Bible, or uh, as we call it in Christian circles, the Old Testament, it's the part of the Bible that can be the most confusing and the hardest to understand. And I want to share some of the things I've gotten to learn through my journey, as well as bring to you excellent voices in this space, people who have spent a lot of time studying here, that... Uh, We can learn more about this fascinating part of the Bible, but most importantly, that we can grow closer to God in our relationship with Him and as we are living our lives uh, for Him. So without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. Welcome to Hebrew Bible Insights, a podcast uh, about making sense of the Hebrew Bible. I'm Matthew Delaney, and I'm very excited for our special guest today, Dr. Sonia Cronin. Thank you so much for joining today. So nice to be here. So there's only two things I need to say about Sonia to get you excited for today. (laughs) She loves Lord of the Rings and she has a PhD in biblical studies. I mean, what more do I need to say? I think that is an amazing combination. Uh, I wonder if you can just start by just telling us a little bit about yourself and especially your, um, how did you get into biblical studies? How did you get into this field? Uh, I mean, you went all the way. You got all the way through even a PhD. I mean, that's about as intense as it can get. So anyway, what, tell us more about your story. Oh, well, let's see. Um, I was paid to read the Bible when I was 12. So that was my, <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, what does that so, mean? Well, I grew up Hindu. Okay. And um, so for the first 12 years of my life, that was that was my experience. And mm-hmm. then um, due to like family issues and, and things like that, um, at some point, somebody paid me to read the Gospel of John. Um, so what what happened was I wanted a pair of really special Nike tennis shoes and, um, you know, I wasn't just going to get those. So I was yep. I was bribed and um, was told. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um was uh, bribed by, you know, if I read the Gospel of John, actually, it was the four Gospels, and I negotiated for the Gospel of John and Acts, not realizing that Acts was actually as big as the the other three, you know, in uh, in terms of, so anyway, um, all of that to say, I started reading Gospel of John and got stuck on that first verse, you know, I mean, it's, it's hard for, for, for the greatest theologian in the world, if you're 12 years old, and you've had no exposure to Bible, you have no idea what this means, right, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God, you know, all of that, it's just, I couldn't go any further, and um, so we have a very close friend of the family that was um, Indian Catholic from Kerala, and uh, her uh, amazing advice was skip it. <laughs> Just, just skip it. It's not important right now. It'll make sense later. So um, I did. And uh, somewhere between uh, chapter one and 21, um, I believed. And that was, that was it, you know, as wow. a 12 year old. 
And, um, you know, not granted conditions were right, but uh, I, I did. And so um, Gospel of John, and then it went to somebody gave me a living Bible and, you know, which is great for a kid because it really is not so literal. It's mm-hmm. in story form. And so you can tear through it. And I was a reader. So what, what was very funny about that is, you know, when you're a kid and you're a reader, you devour books very fast. So like, you know, I mean, I know like my kids, um, you know, made it through the biggest of the Harry Potter books in an afternoon, you know, they start beginning to end and you've read 800 pages before you know it. Um, so that was how I was with the living Bible. Um, you know, I started at Genesis probably at eight in the morning. And by the next day I was, I was through revelation, you know, um, wow. because you just, you devour this kind of stuff and it was easy. It was easy the way that they, they phrased this translation. And so I was able to read it not just once, but multiple times because, you know, there's so many of those stories. And of course you read through Leviticus fast, you know, um, when you're that age. So you just kind of like start flipping pages and, and, and that sort of thing. But, but that was where it started. Um, I was 12 and, and I just read text and it, it, it stayed with me. It stayed with me ever since. So, well, wow, that's an incredible origin story for you and <laughs> and the Bible. Uh, I had never heard that story before. That's fantastic. Yeah. And so I already know. I know you love reading in general. You love I literature do. and you love I stories. Do. Maybe this is a good place. Maybe you can talk about that a little bit. You know, where did your love for stories come from, uh, and for literature, and and how do you see that connected to helping you and maybe others read the Bible well? Well, so, um, you know, one of my, one of my favorite tales to tell is, um, when I was a kid, uh, you know, I was the child of Indian immigrants coming to the U S in the seventies. And, um, in those days, science was currency. It was intellectual currency. You got out of places like, um, you know, uh, oppressive regimes, not that India was that, but if you wanted a better life for yourself, you went into medicine, you went into engineering and um, you went into hard science. And so my dad was a botanist biologist and um, made it out of India uh, and came to the States where, you know, they imagined a, a great life and, and they, they had one actually um, with, because of this education. And so literature is not in that gamut of, of things, right? You, you do math, you do science. So um, I never got taken to the library. That was not something we did. I had math books. I had puzzle books. I had computer games. I was the first kid on the block to have a video game system. But, um, you know, I begged and pleaded for a piano my whole life and never got one, you know, so Mm. these are the values that we sort of had in our family. And the understanding was, um, if you are good at hard science, um, you can go anywhere in the world. The, The countries want you. Whereas if you just start reading literature, I mean, who wants, who wants somebody that reads literature? Nobody. Um, so that was kind of the understanding there. But our, our next door neighbor had this little library of Disney books and they would, um, they would let the neighborhood kids check them out. Hmm. And so it was really cool. You know, you'd run over there and you'd sign your name on a piece of paper and take the book home and all that kind of stuff. Well, um, very sweet family. They were really concerned about imposing religion, especially on their little Hindu neighbor. So I was allowed to check out anything in the entire library except the Old and New Testament. So you can Uh, imagine what that would do. Those those forbidden books are always the ones that you want. So I'll just say this, you know, um, when, uh, when my book finally gets published, I really, really hope that somebody bans it. Um, because if they do, <laughs> it's sure to get read by everyone, right? 
Yes. So um, that's that's kind of what happened. And so I laugh about that now because I think, you know, the way that that encounter happens, it almost doesn't matter which way you go, right? You 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 meet the Old and New Testament as a child and it stays with you and it kind of like forms seeds and you grow with that, but you're denied it as a child and you just want it forever more. So by the time I finally had the opportunity to read it, you know, it was like these forbidden books that I had never been able to get my hands on and all of a sudden I could read them. And so um, I don't know that there was either way it was, it was going to work. Right. Um, so it's, it's kind of neat. Such a fascinating story. And this neighbor sounds amazing. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, totally running amazing. a mini library for the neighborhood. How cool. Absolutely. Absolutely. They were very generous with their library. And then um, I had a friend of ours, a close friend of the family that would buy me fairy tales. And so I have these stories <laughs> about giants and fairies and, you know, all of these kind of things. And um, what was funny is, uh, you know, my parents were minimalists. So, you know, at some point when they decided the reading level was was gone, um, all of these books would get sent to Goodwill. So I never got to keep any of them. They all got uh, sent away. And so one of the things that I've done in my adult life is go back and collect them all. Um, So I have all these books from when I was a kid, you know, that were really inspiring. And they were all just simple tales. They're tales about good and evil. They're they're Aesop's fables. Um, They're tales that tell you about uh, being good in the world um, Mm. and hope, uh, morals. You know, I mean, some of these things are just about intuition, like, you know, in your heart that these things are right. Um, And so, and of course, some of the best stories are the ones where the rules contradict what you think you should do, right? Mm. Somehow or another, you know, in your heart that this is right, but the rules are rigid. What do you do? Do Mm. you break them? Or, um, you know, do you keep to the rule and let your neighbor suffer? You know, how how do you make these choices? And so those were always some of my favorites. Not to jump forward too much ahead, but I hear you have a legendary uh, when you used to, when you taught at university, you had a legendary course that oh. was something about fantasy and the Bible literature, yeah. where you had a class where both of these worlds get to come together. Yeah, no, it's great. Um, it was religion in uh, 20th century fantasy literature. And oh. I actually still, I know it's, it's great. I mean, like, are you kidding? They paid so me cool. to teach Lord of the Rings. You know, I wish I, I had that at my university. I, um, that would, sounds like the best class you could ever take. It is the perfect gig, especially for somebody that loves story. Um, and, um, you know, the, the great thing about a class like that is unless you're just terrible, you can't fail right? I mean, just get up and read and, and you're going to, you're going to soar. Everybody's going to think you're the most amazing teacher in the world um, just because the material is so great, you know? Um, And so uh, it, it is a class that focuses on um, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. We do Lord of the Rings, we do Harry Potter. And then um, we also do Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials. And between those four, we're, we're concentrating on British fantasy and how it changes over the course of, um, you know, the 50, the 50 years between like 1950 and 2000. Um, and what's great is I still actually teach it. I teach it abroad in England for oh, four awesome. weeks every summer. So, oh, well, cool. except for COVID summers, but, you know, other, other than COVID, we, we still do this in England. And um, so it's, it's a really cool class because we're looking at, you know, it's called religion and 20th century fantasy, but it's really Christianity. In 20th century fantasy, because all of these authors are are Christian in some ways, except for Philip Pullman, um, who is an atheist, but he, he grew up Anglican. So you've got kind of, I mean, people refer to him as the anti-Lewis, um, although I don't know that I would, uh, that, that gets a little more complex. We won't, we won't um, 
you know, take a rabbit trail there, but. So I don't even know if this is a possible or a thing, but so you mentioned you teach this in a summer course. Yeah. Is this something that anyone can sign up and join if they want? So I think so. It's through, it's through the Florida state university system. Okay. Um, So you would have to look into that, but yeah, it's, it's so much fun. And what we do in four weeks, of course, is we go see the sites and um, we immerse in England um, because you know, what, what I like to say about, uh, about all of them is they didn't invent the world. The world is England. What they did is animated it with magic. You know, um, and so all of a sudden you have uh, you have woods where there are fawns and you have children that are um, gifted with with magical abilities. And this is one of the things that makes Harry Potter so confusing is that, you know, we think of this as a witchcraft tale and, it, and it's become kind of part of the culture wars, especially of like conservative Christianity and and understandably so. Um, But one of the things that makes us very tricky is that we're not talking about somebody in a back room conjuring demons in order to Mm. get their way. We're talking about somebody that is gifted in the same way that someone is gifted in math, Mm -hmm. right? So the abilities are, are, are created abilities. They're, they're abilities that come from their divine creator, if you want to argue that. Um, And so what we, what we really want to say is that, you know, if you look at that first chapter of Genesis, um, you know, six days of creation, God didn't make anything bad. And um, everything that he put into man was good. Everything Mm. that he put into the world was good, right? The first time we see anything that is not good is it is not good for man to be alone. Mm. So, you know, that's, that's kind of, and you can see we, we launch off to that in, um, in all of those fantasy works because they build on those. So we, we talk about Genesis, we talk about Augustine, we talk about Paradise Lost because I mean, there's a there's sort of a history of interpretation that builds into these stories and, and it's all religious, so. Well, you know, you go to that Genesis line, it's not good for man to be alone. I feel like that, mm-hmm. that plays right into one of the themes that you've talked about in both fantasy literature um, and the Bible and some of that resonates in life, which is, you know, why do we go on great adventures? You know, why do we fight great evil? Can you finish this thought train, you know, that we go, you know, I I actually just finished rewatching Lord of the Rings and reading, reading the book. I used to, when I teach it like on campus, um, I read these books three times a year. And I mean, talk about food for the soul, you know, Mm. it reminds you of, of, of why we live, um, Mm. you know, and what is important, you know. Um, we fight evil because we want to sit in the backyard and eat peaches with our friends, right? That's what this is about. This is about camaraderie and it's about closeness and it's about intimacy with our neighbor. Um, it's about living um, in relationship and community and in peace and being able to enjoy the, the things of creation. And so what I love about something like Lord of the Rings is it really kind of sets that, that theme which is the smallest person makes a difference, right? Um, and there's strength in people that we don't know is there. And when when something is thrust upon them, um, they can do what they have to do. And, and sometimes it's not fair. And sometimes it's, um, it's more than they can handle, but they can handle a lot more when they're in community than when they're by themselves, which is where Lord of the Rings becomes so profound with Samwise Gamgee, right? Mm. Frodo's not gonna make it to the end without Samwise. Mm. Um, and that, that friendship there is, I think, a model uh, uh, that 
that we have, but that's Adam and Eve too, right? Adam's not going to make it far without Eve. And even though, I mean, you know, she's, she's kind of damned throughout history as being the one to make him fall. Um, she was designed to be a helper and, and not just the diminutive helper, right? The help of God, you know, yes. um, the one that he can't, he can't do this without her, you know? So she's not, she's not stirring the flour in the cookie bowl. She's doing a little bit more, you know? Yeah. Yeah. This was, this always baffled me. You know, when we, I, f- I forget most English translations say something like helpmate, maybe yeah. something like that, a helper. Yeah. And I used to be a kid's pastor. And so I, I know that I know the word helper, little kids love being a helper, like oh, five yeah. to seven year olds, but immediately that word becomes something you would not use with peers or let alone people who are above you. Right. right? You would never exactly. ask your boss, Hey, can you be my helper today? Yeah. You know, you I would helper? never ask a peer. Yeah. That's yeah. something you use with kindergarten kids. No, um, I always but, sort of imagine like Adam sink, sunk to his neck in quicksand yeah. and Eve coming by going, you need a little help with that? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yes, actually I do. Well, again, that Hebrew word, the the noun for helper, ezer, that is the only instance in the entire Hebrew Bible where that noun is used in this context where God is not the subject of ezer. Exactly. And so I think when we realize, oh... It's just it's just a classic case in point where we have to remember that the that the connotation of certain words is different in some languages versus another. Whereas the the noun that comes from the verb help in English has certain connotations, but it's very different in, in Hebrew and Hebrew Bible, and unfortunately it's caused problems. So this might be a good segue to one of the main stories we're gonna talk about today, talking about Adam, you know, and maybe Eve getting um, bad rap, so much bad rap <laughs> in this story, which is talking about the story of Sarah. And yeah. I think, I think for a lot of people, Abraham is one of the most famous biblical characters, uh-huh. you know, obviously let's just bracket new Testament to the side for now. You know, I think we're probably more familiar with the new Testament than we are with the old Testament. Looking to hear Bible. I think when many people want to say, let me tell the story of the whole Bible, we have something with Adam and Eve and then maybe Noah, but for right. sure, Abraham. Uh, Abraham. In fact, I remember you know, with my junior high Bible teachers, right? They always talk about Abraham and the faith of Abraham and the promise to him. And, and that it's always where we start with the story. And, but we don't talk much about Sarah. Right. Uh, I guess I would start with just a general question. Why do you think it is that we have so many characters in the Bible that we just, you know, they're there, but we just don't really talk about them. And if we do, they're like a super small side character to a different main plot that's going on. Do you have any thoughts on this? Why certain characters we just don't talk about? Um, I think some of it is that we don't read enough text. Um, Mm. We don't read the story enough times. Like, so, so for example, um, if we read the Hobbit, our first Mm -hmm. character that we come across is going to be Bilbo. Mm -hmm. And if we only read it once, we only remember Bilbo, maybe Gandalf, maybe one of the more prominent dwarves, maybe the dragon, you know, that kind of thing. But you read it 10 times and all of a sudden you get favorite characters right? Mm. There's, there's other people. So for example, um, you know, the Harry Potter base, very few of them just simply go, Oh, Harry, Harry's my guy, right? They all um, are, you know, everybody's got somebody, everybody's got their, their house, um, you know, their Harry Potter house or, or that kind of thing. But that comes from reading it over and over and over. And when we read about Abraham, especially Abraham and Sarah, we read it in the context of, of, of leading to something else. And I think maybe this is kind of a side item, but in some ways, since we're talking about story, let's talk about this. Um, We don't read these tales 
just as stories, stories of our past, stories of a history that that we get to belong to, right? I mean, even even though um, you know you may not be uh, Israelite Jewish, you may not have lineage, you know, DNA lineage that goes back to Abraham, but um, as as believers, um, anybody that 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 buys into any of the Abrahamic traditions, um, he he begins, he is, he is a forefather, right? And so his story matters to us. Um, but we tend to read these stories as segues to something else. So when we're reading about Abraham, oftentimes we're reading about um, Abraham in the context of Paul, right? Uh, the guy that right. lives by faith. Right. Um, but we, all, we, we sort of miss the fact that this guy really had a lot of his life that wasn't lived by faith. It just mm. wasn't. You know, and I think this is one of the great things about what the tradition does is it reminds us that these are everyday people. And um, it makes them much more relatable for yeah. us, right? Like they fail. And, <laughs> like I know there are some people who uh, you know, they feel bad about going to church because they feel like, for example, you know, there's just there's something so wrong with me and my family, we're so messed up, like we can't even show up to church, everyone's gonna look at us, and I'm like you don't read the Bible. I mean, just start with Genesis. I mean, yeah. every family there is everything. I mean, it takes five up. minutes before Cain kills his brother. Right. Right. I mean, you know, and I mean, there's just so much there that we don't know, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, did he know what, what was going to happen when he did that? Because I mean, yeah. if you didn't, you could really assume that any brother would do that to another, <laughs> yes. you know, I mean, um, the younger brothers uh, can get really annoying. You know, um, we, we really need to make make you stop uh, kind of one upping me, you know. Um, so I wonder if I guess let's just do this. Uh, I don't know how much of the story you want to set up or just dive right in. But can you basically tell us what is this story of Sarah? Mm. So so Sarah has always perplexed me. Um, as, as do a lot of, I'm, I'm always interested in the women in the Bible. I mean, obviously, you know, I'm a woman, so, so they, they take a lot of uh, attention, especially when I think they've gotten a bad rap. Mm. And so what, what has always puzzled me about Sarah is why she gets mad when Hagar turns out pregnant. Mm. Um, she's a brilliant woman. Um, okay. Maybe not brilliant. She's at least experienced by the time we get to the point where Abraham has been given Hagar and it's Sarah's idea. Um, there's a lot that's already happened in this story and it's not just happening to Abraham, right? It's happening to Sarah. So she also left or of the Chaldeans. She also had to trek across that long road and come up to Haran. Then Abraham hears, or Abram at the time, hears from God and, you know, and, and the journey must continue into Canaan. And of course, we're going to get, you know, they, they get just barely into the land of Canaan. And this God speaks to them and says, I'm going to give you this land, give, give this land to your descendants, which is a great promise. Um, but they don't actually know much about this God. And, um, you know, when you look around this land, it's already occupied. Um, so it's not like, you know, there's this, there's this uh, sign in front of Canaan that says for sale and God shows up and says, hey, this is for you. I'm going to buy it for you, right? It's already occupied. Um, and those other people have no intention of leaving. 
so it gets really difficult. Um, and then, of course, uh, you know, the land is suffering under famine when they get there. So on top of everything else, even if we wanted this land, it's not exactly looking like it's the best spot. And so they have to travel all the way down to the Negev, to the desert and into Egypt. And then when they get there, you know, Sarah's beauty ends up being a vice. The, the uh, pharaoh um, wants her. And by this time, I mean, she's 65 years old. And this is one of those places where we look at Abram and, you know, rather than, than go, maybe we want to avoid Egypt because they're going to want you. He looks at her and says, they're going to want you. So tell them you're my sister so they can have you licitly. Right. I mean, this is no protector. <laughs> you right. Know? right. Um, she is married to a guy that will literally trade her for cattle. You know, I mean, this is this is awful. And Awful. he won't even, at least, I, one thing I've always wondered, he won't even say it himself. He even right. goes so far as to say, hey, you say it for me. Right. Like, as brutal as this is, he doesn't even have the guts to yeah. even say it himself. I mean, he is, yeah, it's very low tier, low tier it's Abraham. It's very low tier. And <laughs> and you look at the guy and think, this is, this is the patriarch of our faith. Um, yep. Except that he is, right? He is yep. the patriarch of our faith. And so, um, you know, Sarah ends up getting taken into Pharaoh's household. Um, there's just a lot that happens there because, um, you know, God intervenes. Abram doesn't intervene. He takes cattle and stuff, you know, and is, is living peacefully. But for whatever reason, God intervenes on Sarah's behalf. And um, I think, you know, it says something to her. It says that she's worth something, especially in a patriarchal society. It's not just Abram that matters. It's Sarah mm. that matters. And of course, the story being written announces that for everybody that's reading too. You know, you may not think she's important, but she's important enough for God to meddle in the household of Pharaoh and go, don't touch this woman. Mm. You know, and there's debate. There's a lot of debate as to whether Sarah was compromised or not. I lean on the side of absolutely not. She was mm -hmm. not compromised. Um, because she's not bearing the air for the future if she was. Yeah. Um, but that's, you know, again, that's opinion. Those people will argue with me on that. But all of this to say, by the time she gets back and they move, they, they end up leaving um, Egypt and, uh, you know, Pharaoh expels them very much in the same way as the Israelites will be expelled out of Egypt later by the hand of God. You know, so there's a lot of parallel happening. You know, the story of Abraham and Sarah foreshadows the story of the Israelites coming out of Egypt. There's, there's a lot there. So there's a lot of linking happening. And of course, Sarah is beautiful in appearance, just like the tree in the garden of Eden, you know, so even that there's, there's just the punning. I mean, you know, this, this mm -hmm. is, uh, especially in Hebrew, uh, you can't reading, miss it. Yeah. Reading your, the, your story of Sarah that you wrote, I, I was blown away at the connections between this story and Genesis, especially yeah. Genesis three, as well as X. I'd never thought of this stuff before and yeah. just brilliant. Really cool. Just so, I mean, you know, I, I, I pointed it out, but I didn't write it. So, I mean, you know, it's there, right. they're, they're making these connections, which is, yeah. which is so fantastic. I mean, it's one of the things that makes Hebrew so much fun is all the punning happening left and right, you know, that unfortunately gets lost in translation. So, um, you know, anybody out there, it's absolutely worth learning your Hebrew, you know, um, it's, it completely changes the text, but, um, anyway, go ahead. Yeah. One of the lines that I'd underlined here that I thought with, with Pharaoh, I'd be curious what your thoughts are. This is kind of like a little small detail. We don't have to, don't have to stay on yeah. this too long. But yeah. when you said, now, obviously, so God, when he intervenes, he sends plagues. 
yeah. to Egypt. Same same Hebrew word as plagues we get later. He yep. outright sends plagues. I mean, you want to talk about about God intervening for Sarah, and <laughs> he, I mean, big display for this, and amazing. He did he does this for one person for Sarah. Yes. You know, what I mean, it doesn't yes, it doesn't he, does. he doesn't require a whole nation of people to come do this. He does it for Sarah. He does it for Sarah. So as you said, just echoing your point, how much she matters. And even in a patriarchal society where maybe theoretically people could view it as, you know what? No, no, no. God made this promise to Abraham. This is an Abraham thing. Worst case, just get a new woman and we can keep going. But apparently God doesn't see it that way. But anyway, one of the lines you'd written is, the plagues held Pharaoh to righteousness, to conscious, even if his own heart did not. And what was interesting to me is as you make this parallel to uh, the Exodus story with Pharaoh, Mm -hmm. it's so interesting how this Pharaoh responded in the way that the new Pharaoh was supposed to. And so ironically, there's almost this reversal where Abraham has heard from God, Mm -hmm. but is not acting in a very righteous way at all. (laughs) I mean, to say the least, he's, in fact, God tells, tells him through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed and he can't even love his own wife. Right. right. So how, you know, how can he, if he can't even be family, how can he bless other families? But then you have this Pharaoh who, if we aren't careful, we're going to char- characterize all Egyptian Pharaohs as they're hard, hard hearted, hard headed, not going to listen. And it seems this Pharaoh was in the dark, right? He was lied to. And then God yeah. sends plagues and he says, okay, look here, like right away. He, yeah. I mean, he seems, he listens to God a lot better than Abraham does. Is that fair? Yeah. A fair assessment? I think, I think it is. I think it is. And I love, um, one of the things that I love is is that response to the plagues or the miraculous, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, um, you know, in the gospel of Mark, which is also picked up in Matthew and, and Luke, um, you know, Jesus is going to hit the disciples with that. Are your hearts hard too? And part mm-hmm. of what he's hitting at is you've seen all these miracles. Mm-hmm. You were there. You were insiders, right? You aren't yeah. just sitting there being fed, but you saw the bread break, right? Yes. Do you not believe? Um, and I think, at, at least from my understanding, that's part of what's at stake here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when we talk about Pharaoh's heart being hardened, which God takes responsibility for, especially um, in the latter plagues of Exodus, there is this sense of which... Um, the hardening happens because a new plague comes. And when that new plague is encountered and he goes, no, I'm not mm. going to believe, you mm. know, it's, it's, you're either going to soften or you're going to harden one, one of the others going to happen. Yeah. But, you know, one of the, one of the, the natures of the interaction with God, whether it's in covenant or whether it's in, um, you know, interaction with the plagues or interactions with miracles is there's no in between. You do not get to be what you were before you encountered this, this event. Mm. Um, that's interesting. It's one of my favorite things to, to teach in Tolkien. Tolkien calls it the doom of choice. Hmm. So the doom of choice is this. Um, you come across a burning building and you stand there and you realize there's children inside the building. What do you do? right? The building is going to fall. If you go in, you could die. Um, Do you rescue the children or not? Hmm. And that moment defines who you are, right? Hmm. You don't get to go back because you've already encountered the building. You are either a hero or you are a coward, Hmm. but you are not what you were before, right? So you either run into the building and you save or you run away from the building, pretend like you never saw it. And in your heart, you're forevermore a coward, but you are changed by the event, 
right? And this is what happens, I think, when we encounter these supernatural things. Um, Pharaoh chose rightly, right? He ended up being um, a good guy because, uh, you know, he encounters those plagues and lets Sarah go. So, so we see this throughout the biblical tradition as well, this doom of choice. What happens when we encounter the poor? Do we help them or do we walk away? It defines who we are, right? What happens when we encounter God? Are we, are we moved by that? Or are we, do we remain unmoved? Because what we think is that remaining unmoved might keep us in the same spot, but it doesn't. It hardens, right? And that's the thing. Every encounter does something. So what are you going to let it be? That is Bye. so powerful. I feel so inspired. I'm ready to attack my day. <laughs> Let's go. I'm ready. I'll be Samwise. I'll be Frodo. I don't care. Like right. I'm ready. I'm be ready to anybody, go. right? Yep. I mean, it's it's, and I mean, and this is of course with um, with Frodo and Gollum, right? The over and over that Gollum deserves death, and Frodo spares it, or Bilbo spares it, just adds life to them, right? It's almost as if they're just banking something for later, which of course, you know, with Tolkien, we know that they are, but, but in some ways the, the gospels tell us this too. The Bible tells us this too, right? Every single time we take care of somebody that's poor, um, we're banking something for later. That's not the reason why you do it. But I mean, honestly, if it is the reason why you do it, do it anyway. <laughs> you know? Yes. Right. So I wonder if, um, so you've already kind of hinted at this whole, this interesting story between Hagar and Sarah and what's yes. really going on. Obviously with a lot of biblical stories, we aren't, we aren't told everything they're thinking, yeah, you know, like not. it's, you know, it's very common in a lot of modern literature where we get a, we get a, so much of their inside thought life and right. all of their motives and everything. Whereas Hebrew Bible and Bible in general, you know, they'll give us some hints and some clues, yeah. but it seems to be to me, at least drawing us into the story to engage to think, to analyze, and to join the great conversation of what's going on here. Yeah. And and you make a really interesting case that <laughs> maybe we're jumping the gun on assuming, oh, we know what Sarah was thinking. We know what's going on here. So basically, I guess where we landed it off, they're in Egypt. They're uh, in Egypt. God sends the plagues, right? And then Sarah ends up leaving. And we probably are getting Hagar here, right? We're probably I guess we don't getting really know. Hagar here. Because we know she's probably. Egyptian. We know so she's, she's Egyptian. So she was probably one of the things that Abraham yeah. got for giving. By the way, this I don't know how rich Abraham was before this, but it just hurts me too that this is where he got so much of his of his wealth <laughs> yes. from selling his wife. He gets yeah. so much wealth and he gets Hagar. And so anyway, Hagar. So right. we pick up the story from here then. Where 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 do we go from here with the story of Sarah? We go back to we go back to Canaan. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, life continues and there is no child. Um, and in, a, in an ancient Near Eastern context, especially with one husband and one wife, um, if there is barrenness in question, it's the wife, right? She, she must not be able to bear. It's, it's exactly how this would go. But I think um, anyone as, as shrewd as Sarah, someone that has now governed a clan, I mean, she is the matriarch. Um, you know, Abraham does his thing, but Sarah is in charge of the house. She's in charge of the servants. I mean, they have... You know, when, when Lot gets uh, kidnapped by the kings, um, you know, that, that come in and, and take him away, Abraham has a lot of people in his compound that he's able to take and go get Lot back and go get all their stuff. So it's not simply, we're not talking about a nuclear family here with mm -hmm. mom, dad, and no kids. We're talking about 
I mean, tens, maybe maybe a hundred people, maybe more. I don't know. Um, we don't have those numbers, but it's a lot um, because Abraham is able to be protected. Um, he's not in danger of some, you know, some marauding group coming and taking his stuff. They have land, they have wealth, they have cattle, they have people um, to work all of this. And um, you know, at some point. Abram, um, Abraham, when he's talking to God, says, you know, he, he made me all these promises, but there's no child. Um, and God reiterates the promise, right? It's not going to be Eleazar. It's going to be somebody from your own loins. Um, and, and they buy this, right? And Abraham believes, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and it's all great and wonderful. Um, but where's the kid? The kid is nowhere to be seen, right? So, um, my own take on this is this kind of stigma sticks to the woman, right? So by this time, I mean, even by the time they're in Egypt, Sarah has dropped dead gorgeous enough that the Pharaoh wants her. All of Egypt is noticing her. Um, but she has Which, by children. the way, not to interrupt, but like whenever I think we're told this for Aaron and Sarah, it's like, oh, they're so old. They can't have kids. We imagine these elderly, decrepit oh, yeah. people when she's so beautiful that yes. you know pharaoh the pharaoh wants to take her yes um yes no. he's not looking at her like she needs her aarp card right <laughs> he is he is looking at her like i want her right i want yep. her and i will trade you all of this stuff i mean think about this yep. if you go through the list of everything abraham gets for yep. trading sarah yeah. she's not traded for a camel no, she's traded for uh, I mean, the entire compound, right? Yeah. I mean, animals and spices and people, and she's worth a lot. And when it's all over, Pharaoh's just like, take it all, just get out of here. Like you were causing me grief, just go. And so we have that kind of plunder of Egypt that happens early on, the same kind of plundering that's going to happen at um, with, oh. with Moses, right? Yeah, right? You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's really very profound in, in its parallel. But so maybe... So maybe right before you dive in, maybe yeah. it'll help to all kind of word what I would say is probably a typical retelling of the story of Sarah, yeah. and, Sarah and Hagar. That yeah. This moment basically is sure. that Sarah is extremely old, right? We're probably not imagining anyone beautiful looking. She's, you know, we're not imagining her as a, you know, the co-owner of a family business. You know right. what I mean? It's just, it's just, she's, you know, an older woman, no kids. And there's this promise they can't have kids. She's super sad. And she just does something that is, this is what they used to do back then. They just take a servant, you just sleep with her and that'll be the story. Right. Yeah. I think that it's for us, this is such a simple, um, straightforward, as weird as it is for our modern conceptions. It's like, oh, okay, I guess. And there are some stories where servants, you know, they take yeah. them and some of them anyway, and that's what's going on here. But yeah. you see, there's something much maybe deeper and intricate uh, and interesting going on. here. Yeah. Because, so, so what happens, right, is that it's Sarah's idea. She says, take this girl, Hagar, and Hagar is young and, um, you know, uh, definitely thought of to be fertile. She's probably going to have a child. And she tells Abram, you know, look, we need, um, we need an heir. Sleep with Hagar. And what's so sad about this is this isn't even a hard sell. Like, he, he doesn't, we don't have a lot of argument from Abraham at this moment. He's like, sure, I can do this, right? This isn't too yeah. hard. Yep. And so um, we imagine, though, and this is the thing that always got me, is that when Hagar turns out pregnant, Sarah loses it. Mm. She doesn't just get like a little peeved or annoyed. 
Um, Hagar looks at her mistress, Sarah, with contempt, very mm -hmm. much like, ah, I can bear a child and you cannot, right? Yeah. Um, and what happens is people see this tale and they go, oh yeah, Sarah, she got her feelings hurt. Um, she changed her mind. Women are fickle that way. Like it was all great and fine when, when, the, when the plan started, but then she got very, very angry when it came to its fruition. And of course, I mean, that's what happens with women, right? I mean, they just get mad. They're jealous. I mean, there's a lot of stuff. You, you almost can't say what was happening with Sarah without adding something about the way that women are, right? Mm. When, women are like this. So we mm. could imagine that Sarah would be like this. Mm. And what, what I kind of want to do is, is counter that and go, no, we're talking about a woman that, that, has traveled as much as Abraham. She's seen exactly the same thing that he has. Her life has been in jeopardy more than his has. And when she needed someone to come through for her, it wasn't her husband that did it, mm. right? She's had to stand on her own. She's the one that was inside Pharaoh's palace, not Abram. He was outside, you know, having a nice time with all his newfound plunder while his wife has now been given to the Pharaoh, right? And, and so Sarah's had to hold her own. She's no waif. She's no fickle woman that just simply changes her mind. She knows exactly what's gonna happen when Hagar gets pregnant. And so, I mean, her ability to handle staff Right. I mean, I, I think what I want to do is I want to think of Sarah in some ways as a CEO. Right. Mm. She knows how to handle staff. And when somebody quite a bit lesser than her looks at her with a little contempt, it's not like Sarah at this stage in her life is going to crumble and go, oh, dear, my feelings are so hurt. I can't manage it. That's not what's happening here. Mm. So then the question is, what's really going on here? Like, mm -hmm. why would Sarah get so mad? And this is where I began to reflect and go, Sarah got mad, not because the plan worked. Sarah got mad because the plan didn't work. And it comes, I think, that there's a line that happens when she really loses it with Abraham, right? Because Abraham comes before her and she looks at him and says, may the wrong done to me be on you. Mm. And I think the wrong that she felt like was being done to her was, I don't think Sarah thought she was barren. Mm. I think Sarah thought that Abraham was the barren one. Mm. And so the plan failed because what was supposed to happen is that she was going to give him this young and fertile woman. And this young and fertile woman wasn't going to get pregnant any faster than Sarah was, right? Because the problem's not with the women, the problem's with the man. Mm. Um, and a patriarchal society, she can't call him out on that. But, and, and this is all my supposition, right? Sure. Yep. Um, but what, what is supposed to happen is he's supposed to have Hagar and nothing's supposed to happen. There's no child that's going to come because, because Abraham can't patriarch. Yep. So, um, what happens instead, of course, is Hagar ends up pregnant and then all of a sudden Sarah is stuck. Right. Mm -hmm. Because and, and it's the same kind of stuckness that we all have, mm -hmm. which is we see these events in our life that point to something. They point to purpose. They point mm -hmm. to some reason that I'm here. Right. And for Sarah, being delivered out of Pharaoh's household was almost a, a, a writ that said, you matter. You're going to be the matriarch. You're going to have a child and it's, it's going to be OK. And then all of a sudden. She, it's, it's gone in an instant, right? This young woman is now pregnant and the heir is, is here. 
and it doesn't involve Sarah at all. Um, and Abraham was fine with it. Hagar, of course, is very fine with it. Um, her status just went from, from servant to mother of the air, right? And Sarah is just left out in the cold. Why did God save her? Hmm. Right? This is the, I mean, just every possible existential question of purpose in, in an individual wow. just completely comes crumbling down. So when she falls apart, she's not falling apart because her plan worked. She's falling apart because the plan failed. Mm. And then she was stuck looking in the mirror going, oh my God, I am barren, right? Wow. It is me. It's not him. But then why does God save her, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and of course we know how the story ends, which is she is indeed the matriarch. Um, and Hagar really sh maybe should never have been into play, except that we do end up with the Ishmaelites because of that. And so we can't even, you know, it's that kind of thing where do we, do we regret? We can't quite regret because we end up with Ishmael, you know? So, um, but I think it, it, it puts a little perspective on um, a different motivation for Sarah. And then even with that, God's promises don't stop, right? He doesn't look at that and go, oh, you all, you all blew it. You all blew yep. it. Plans yep. thwarted. We're done here. He still comes back and says, Sarah matters. She's mm. always mattered. Just because you took things into your own hands doesn't mean she stopped mattering. I have a plan. And that plan's going to continue to work out, even though you've complicated it all, you know? Ugh. So it's that is such a good message. Um, one, it's just a fan. It, it makes it for a fascinating, moving story, but very compelling and meaningful for us as well. I think a lot of us could, can relate to that in our own ways, you know, where we're trying to work things out and contrive things in our own life. And we end up complicating things and we end up having a moment where we look in the mirror and we see contradictions in ourselves in ourselves and and we wonder why why did god save sarah why did god save me you know right. why was i given fill in the blank purpose and on abraham's side i imagine he felt he, well he at least should have felt a similar way when again going back to he's called to be a blessing to families of the earth yet right. the very next story he sells up his own wife and it's like mm -hmm. You know, this isn't just a random character flaw. Like God called him to be blessed in all the families of the earth, but his organizational skills weren't strong. Or, <laughs> yes. you know what I mean, he wasn't a great, you know, communicator. It's like this, this was a contradiction that attacked directly at the heart of what his purpose was. Yeah. And it seems that Sarah, she has her own challenges going on that, you know, as that we find out how does she interact? How does she respond to the things that her husband does? And how does she respond to the situation around her? And she becomes an incredibly relatable character, I would feel like, yeah. for a lot of people. Especially um, as we are stuck with what we think is supposed to be failure, right? Mm. Or, or something where we think that we've latched on um, to, some, to something that seems like vision or purpose or I'm here for this reason kind of mm. thing, right? And then all of a sudden something happens later and you're like, it, none of this is working, None of this is working out, you know, and then like for Sarah, the question is, why do, why did I matter? It doesn't seem, I thought I mattered, but clearly I don't matter um, because Hagar's going to have the child now. And she has to sit with that for a decade. You know, it's not like God just comes in and goes, your hurt feelings, I understand them. Um, let's mm. just wipe them clean. Mm. No, she, she sits there until all hope is gone. Mm. Right. So when the angel comes back and says this time next year, Sarah is going to have a child. It is no surprise that this woman laughs. Right. She's done with hope. 
Mm. Um, Hope has done nothing but cause her pain. And so now, you know, she's like, whatever, whatever. I believed that at one point in time in my life. I don't believe it anymore. Um, And I think that's one of the beauties of the story is that the, the, the plan is not dependent on her hope. You know, um, again, this is this is one of those things that um, even Tolkien understands very, very well, is that there are certain things that happen to people and it's too much for them. We're human. Right. And these trials and these these tragedies are are actually more than we can bear. So I think one of the most sinister lies of all times is that God doesn't give you more than you can handle. That's a lie. Um, where these things are coming from. I'm not going to say where they're coming from or not. Um, But to say that humans don't endure more than they can handle is just, it's a lie. We do all the time. Look around, you know, um, parents that lose a child. I'm just, it's, it's more than we can handle, right? Um, Nobody can handle that. And so you come out the other side of, I mean, the the litany, we can go down the list of all the things that's more than we can handle. Um, We lose hope. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Um, the plan still stays, right? For Sarah, the hope is all gone. And at 90 years old, she still has a child, wow. right? The child, and, and she laughs again, right? It restores her laughter, um, you know, and, and we get the punning happening even there. So uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't move God's timetable, um, not in that story at all. She still has to, she, she has to suffer, but um, it comes through right? The very promise that came from the beginning um, when she was 65 years old, right? You're going to have a child. I mean, that was to Abraham, but the assumption was it involved Sarah too. Um, all of the assumptions that they made, right? That, that Sarah mattered, that Pharaoh had to give her back, that, um, that there was a plan for her. They weren't wrong. Their timing was off. You mm. know, and what happened is they got they got impatient, which is reasonable. I mean, she didn't end up ninety before she had a child, um, but you know they weren't they weren't wrong. All the signs were pointing, and they were interpreting the data correctly. They just they just lost hope, right? Such a powerful story, and the way you tell it, it just feels so much more rich uh, and meaningful. I think than many of the ways that we are taught this story. I wonder if I can add just a couple more questions. First sure. one will just be a little more practical. Uh, I think a lot of people listen to this podcast, people who take the Bible seriously and want to continue to develop their own reading abilities of, of engaging with the, with stories, you know, not just be, you know, of course the story of Sarah and Abraham, but also others. Do you have any, pra- any practical tips that you would give people on how to uh, engage with these stories better? Um, I think one of the things that I would say is try really hard not to have, not to have the preacher in your head. You know, we are taught how to read stories and that's great. Um, There's a, there's a particular way, um, but oftentimes one person's take on it will form the way that we read it forevermore. Um, And we have imagination that that is ours, you know? So when we start reading these things, um, there's a lot of flexibility and motivation. So like one, one of my favorite things to do in a biblical studies course um, is to talk about when Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden. Why are they expelled from the garden? What's the mood? Mm. You know, um, we're not actually told what that mood is. 
but how we interpret that mood, it completely changes our theology, right? If God is so angry that they transgressed his commandment, we have one type of God and one way that theology goes. If it's much more like, you know, they just broke a jar of honey in the kitchen and they're going to step on it and get glass all in their feet. And so God's like, get out of here. I got to clean up this mess you just made, right? That's a very different way of looking at what's happening in the garden. Um, none of those are given to us. We have to interpret. So mm. what, what, I, what I think is that we look at these stories and we kind of imagine what are the different motivations that could be here? Um, so, you know, you can read the Joseph story very different. You can you read the story of Jacob and his brother, uh, you know, and, and Esau, but all the way through, um, you know, the freedom to interpret is ours. And so we should, we should use that freedom, um, cling to it. That's so great. And I think we end up learning so much from engaging in that way and having conversations with others, which is another reason I'm so glad to get to have you here as you present this story in a, in a very fresh uh, and rich way. And, uh, and you're such a great model, I think, for us to continue to engage with our imagination. And when I think for me, if I were to walk away with anything, it's this, it's this remembering one, one side note, I think the value of continuing to engage with great fiction uh, that, oh, that yeah. actually does enhance our ability to, to read the Bible better and just enjoy life, right? Just enjoy it for the sake of enjoyment. And also to engage in scripture in the same way. Let's just enjoy it instead of always feeling like I need to read just so I can find some principle or truth that I'm supposed to apply and, you know, figure out the math formula that the Bible is. Instead, just this is, these are epic stories. Let's engage with the characters and the plots. Uh, super fascinating. Now, the, the last question I want to ask you, you kind of uh, maybe mentioned this really early in our, in our conversation. One thing I like to ask people is, what are you working on now? What type of things are you involved in? Any projects, anything that you're working on? Yeah, I'm working on the Endless Project on the Gospel of Mark. Um, I've been working on it for probably a year and a half, two years now. Um, it took a different turn about a year ago, which, which made it move faster. Mm-hmm. Um, but I probably still have another year. Uh, to go on it. And um, it's, it's basically looking at the different ways that um, Mark uses Hebrew Bible um, and, and layers his stories uh, with echoes. Um, it's, it's a, it's a field called intertextuality. Um, but uh, it, the way that I'm doing it is, is very story-based as which should surprise no one um, you yes, know, after five course. minutes of being with me. So, right. yeah. Yeah, I can tell everyone I, I am blessed to be privy to a little bit more information than she's giving. And all I can tell you is I love everything I get to hear. I get some of the behind <laughs> the scenes on what's going on there. And you have an amazing gift as not just um, a Bible scholar, but a storyteller. And, you know, my office, I have Robert Alter's translation, the Hebrew Bible. We were talking God, about that I before, love Robert Alter. before yes. we started recording. And and one of the things he just finished recently, if anyone doesn't know, is, you know, he's he did a single person translation of the whole Bible. And what's unique about his is, is uh, his background is compared tech in, in the academic setting is comparative literature and also Hebrew language. And he says that the problem with the King, Ch- King James version translation is a shaky sense of Hebrew. And the problem with other modern translations is a shaky sense of English. Yeah. And he says that, that, <laughs> it's a beautiful that, way of putting it, isn't it? That the yeah. trend with a lot of biblical scholarship right now in terms of translation work is that you have people who are trained in the ancient languages and they do a lot of biblical studies, but he says, but they don't learn literature. They don't learn poetry, just how to do those things well. So I think he brings something truly unique to the table 
with these contributions that he makes. So anyway, I would say you're very similar in that way, um, where for you, this, this bringing together of great biblical knowledge of, I mean, gosh, you have a PhD in biblical studies and the religions of the, of antiquity, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you love both consuming and telling stories. And so I think it creates a, a much needed thing in our field because the Bible, unfortunately, has become very dry and flat and we need more great storytellers. So anyway, I've really appreciated getting to have, uh, have you on and thanks for joining this conversation. Any last thoughts you would give anyone listening? Mm, no, just read, read, read what just you love. Just read, you know? yes. Yeah. Excellent. All right, well, uh, thanks for coming on the podcast and I uh, would love to have you on whenever you finish your Mark project. That'd be great. Thank you. Thank you for having me here.